Let's turn to the book of Acts. That's where we've left off. If you're just joining us this week, we've been reading through the book of Acts for the past few weeks. We're going to continue on that. Um, it's a powerful thing. It's an awesome thing to see uh, what Jesus did through the early church. And like I've said before, it's so often, it's easy for us to say early church as if it's a different church. We say early church as if it is a different period of time, um, as if it's almost a different world. The early church was never called the early church in the Bible. They're just called the church. They have not ceased to be the church. Amen. We're the church. Yes, so you, the, the, I like, I call it the early church. I use that phrase. There's nothing wrong with that. But sometimes you get in that mode where you think, well, that happened in the early church, but this is now. We don't get those kind of things now. We're not, we're, we're not experiencing that. That's not the way it happens now. And sure, the culture's different. Sure, the time is different, but the Holy Spirit is still the same. Jesus is still the same. And in fact, if you're going to take Scripture, you understand that the Bible says in the latter days, the form and the latter rains will come together. So, hey, if it was the last days then, it's even more the last days now. And Jesus tells us clearly, and, and the Holy Spirit tells us throughout the New Testament, and even the Old Testament prophets, that things don't fizzle out in the end. They get bigger and they get stronger. So it's a, it's, it's a mistake for us to say, well, that was the early church, but that's not how it works now. Let's remember we are the church. And I've said this before, and I'm sure we'll talk about it more at length in another time. But, you know, the book of Ephesians says that the church says that he placed him, Christ, as head of all things, and he's the head of the body, which is the church. And then it says it's the fullness of him, who fills all and is in all. That's a powerful thing. That we, the church, are his body who fills all. The fullness of him who wants to fill everything. The fullness of him who does fill everything. And so the church is not merely a pale reflection of Jesus. The church is meant to be the fullness of Jesus on this earth. It's meant to fill every space and every crack and every part of society. It's meant to not be a weak church, but a powerful church. Because if the head's powerful, the body's powerful. We're not after the power, but we understand that if we're not willing to step up and embrace who we are, we're not going to see what's promised in the Bible. Well, I mean, it's going to happen. It's been prophesied. But whether or not we're on the, on the center of it, on the cusp of it, is up to us. And we want to be. We want to be in on what God's doing. Amen? You know, there's 120 people in the upper room. I'm sure that number is significant. I know that 12 was significant in the Bible. But I can't find any place where Jesus told anybody but, you know, he appeared to a bunch of people. He appeared to the 12. He appeared to over 100 people at one time. He appeared uh, to some of the women at different times. But I can't see anywhere where he singled people out and said, you can't come to the upper room. If it's there, it's not in Scripture. If it happened, it didn't get written down. It appears that everybody that wanted to go, everybody that was willing to go, was there. They were the ones that were touched. They were the ones that showed up, so they were the ones that got the first dose of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes just showing up is a big deal. Sometimes saying, if God told us to go here, if the Lord spoke and he says, this is what I want you to do, we're going to do it. We might feel silly, but we're going to do it. We pick up in Acts chapter 2 after these nutty people have begun to, uh, you know, they're in the upper room. There's a sound coming from heaven that the best they can describe is it sounds like a hurricane, like a mighty rushing wind. Doesn't say it was a wind because it doesn't say they felt it. It just says they heard it. And after they heard it, they saw something. After they heard the sound, they saw what appeared to be um, like tongues of fire, the Holy Spirit coming and resting on people. They leave the room. I don't know how long they're in the room. But they eventually leave the room. They go out into center stage Jerusalem. And they begin to speak with other tongues. And the scripture says, as they speak with other tongues, that the people in the audience don't hear a, a, a mumble or a jumble of different languages. They each hear all of them in their own language. And as they hear them in their own language, they're hearing them glorifying and praising God. And then it says there's another group 
Now that's important. We talked about that last week. There are two distinct groups. It talks about the devout. Those that are there because they're seeking God. They, they may not have ever believed in Jesus, but they, they came to Jerusalem because of the feast. They came to Jerusalem because they wanted to be closer to the temple. These guys were there, devout men and women who hear this and are drawn and are praising, hearing them glorifying God. They're excited about it. But then it says there's another group. It says there were some there who were mocking. These people weren't hearing the miracle. These people were seeing some crazies. And it says these guys are drunk. And the scripture says it was the third hour of the day. Now, the third hour of the day doesn't mean 3 o'clock in the morning. The Jewish day, I mean, in the, in the, way, they, the way they started their day was at 6 a.m. So if it's the third hour, that's 9 o'clock in the morning. Now, you might know some drunks. You might know some people that, uh, you know, they, they, they get drunk early. They, I mean, they, they get drunk often. But I don't know too many people that would get drunk at 9 in the morning, at least not in public. But these guys did. I mean, these guys didn't. So I'm sorry, these guys were accused of being drunk at 9 in the morning. And uh, Peter stands up, and here's what he says. We're going to start right with, his, right with his message in verse 14 of chapter 2. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. I love how Peter says that. It's kind of funny. He says they're not drunk because it's 9 o'clock in the morning. But of course, we can also assume they wouldn't be drunk because they're following Jesus, right? But he's just trying to say, it's not what you think. They're not drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. They're not drunk. It says, but this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. Now, this is important. He's going to reference a lot of prophecy in this short little message. And the reason for it is, is that number one, all of this is fulfilling prophecy. But number two, the reason he's referencing it to this group is these are men of Judea and Jerusalem. Now, they came from all different parts of the world, but they were all Jewish. Whether they were proselytes or whether they were born Jewish just, just in a different land, these guys all believed in one God. They all knew the prophets. And as Peter begins to proclaim this to them, he references things they already know. He references things they understand. But he's telling them this is the fulfillment of prophecy. To recap what we talked about last week, you've got to remember, this is Jerusalem. This is probably not the place to base your headquarters when you're starting the church of Jesus Christ. Because this is the one city that opposed Jesus more than any other city. You could make a case that Jesus' hometown was a rough place. They tried to throw him off a cliff one time. And in and, and, and my, you know, eight and a half years of being a pastor, no one's ever tried to throw me off the cliff. And maybe that's just because I'm, I'm not as good as Jesus was. But nobody's ever tried that. They tried to throw him off a cliff. They, they didn't believe in him, so he only did a few miracles. But Jerusalem was a little bit worse than even in his hometown. You remember, and I know we talked about it last week, but to recap... You'll remember that when Lazarus died, the disciples didn't want to go. They were close to Lazarus. They were close to Mary. They were close to Martha. These were their friends. They saw Jesus weep. Yet none of them wanted to go down because they said, Lord, you'll die if you go there. When they saw that Jesus was determined. Now, Lazarus lived in Bethany. Bethany was a suburb of Jerusalem. I said it before, this is about from, from here to that 7-Eleven on Highway 17. That's about Jerusalem to Bethany. It's too close for comfort. So they say, if we go to Bethany, you're going to die. And one of them just bravely says, this is the bravest thing. He, he's not full of faith, but at least he's full of loyalty. And he says, well, Lord, if you're going to go die, at least we'll go die with you. I don't know if he's being sarcastic or if he's just resigning himself to his fate. Let's all just go die. You, you want to be with your buddy Lazarus? Because you're going to get your wish. As soon as we go to Bethany, they'll kill us. That's, that's because it was that close to Jerusalem. That's what they thought of Jerusalem. And they weren't wrong. 
When the triumphant entry happened, I know we talked about this, but let's say it again. When the triumphant entry happened, it was not the people of Jerusalem that came out and met Jesus. The Bible says it was his disciples that went ahead of him, and it was the pilgrims from different areas that had heard him before or had heard of him and came to see him. But the people of Jerusalem, the nicest people of Jerusalem said, who's this guy? The mean one said, shut your disciples up. And some of them had made a pact when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead that they would not rest until Jesus was dead and Lazarus too because Lazarus was a walking testimony of the power and the rightful Messiah, uh, claim of Messiah that Jesus said. Because here was a man who'd been dead over three days and raised to life. And they had a superstition, they had a belief that if somebody, you know, for three days that perhaps the spirit was hanging around. Of course, it's not true, but it's what they believed. So if you, if you raised a man from the dead that had been dead for more than three days, you really are who you say you are. So Lazarus gets up from the dead. They say, we're going to kill Jesus, we're going to kill Lazarus. This is exactly what the disciples thought was going to happen. Is this the city we should start our ministry in? How about we start back in Galilee where people like us, we get big. We get, some, we get big enough to hire some security guards. We get some big buff guys that, that are believers. It's okay. We learned our lesson in the garden. Maybe we won't try our, our own hand at sword craft, but we'll get some guys that know how to use a sword and, and aren't like Peter who's aiming for the center, the seam of a man's helmet misses and cuts off his ear. Maybe we'll get somebody who knows how to aim. But that's not what happened. You remember what they said to Jesus. You had Peter, Simon Peter, a guy who was willing to defend Jesus to the death in the garden. You had Simon the Zealot, who many scholars believe was part of a fringe group that wanted to overthrow the Romans. And all the time they're following Jesus, they're saying, yeah, he, he must be the Messiah. Yeah, he must be the Son of God. At some point, we're going to throw the Romans out. At some point, we're going to toss them. You have guys like James and John. When a village doesn't receive Jesus, a village says, we don't believe James and John says, we have the solution for this village. What's your solution? Call fire down from heaven and toast them. It'll fix them. And Jesus says, you don't know what spirit you're of. And somehow their world fell apart when Jesus died. Because all of their dreams of overthrowing the system... Now, maybe some of them believed it would happen this way. Maybe some of them believed it happened this way. But it, it seems clear through the scripture that none of them expected, no matter how many times Jesus said, I'm going to die, nobody really expected it would happen like it did. And when it did, they were, dis, they were despairing. They were dejected. We see the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. When Jesus sneaks up and starts talking to them, they're not happy. They're not expectant. It says they were sad. Everybody was sad and afraid. They had locked the doors. When Jesus appeared to them, it says the doors were shut for fear of the Jews. These are your first church leaders. And here's what happens. When Jesus triumphantly comes back from the dead, one of the things they ask him before he ascends, is this the point where we take the kingdom? Is this the point where you set up your kingdom here on earth? In other words, we missed the goal. We didn't realize you had to die. I get it now. We understand. You got up from the grave. Let's go get this done. And Jesus says, it's not up to you to know when that's going to happen. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be my witnesses, both here in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And then they watch him as he goes up into the clouds. That's the last they see of him for a while. And here they are in the city. Jesus tells them, he does not say wait for me. He says, wait for me in Jerusalem. The city where they were so angry at Jesus that they yelled, crucify him, crucify him. Think about this. Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, knew it was illegal to put this man to death. Knew he was an innocent man. And yet the mob was so scary that they scared a Roman governor into executing an innocent man. Even his own wife told him not to do it. But he was so afraid of the people. These are the people you're going to preach your first message in front of? People I first preached my first message in front of, they liked Jesus. And I was nervous 
First time I preached a message, I was hoping that the rapture would come five seconds before they called me up, and that would be done, and it was all good. I didn't want to get up on the stage, and these are people that love you and, and want to clap, and, and they, they're, they're followers of Jesus. Your first sermon is going to be in front of a city that terrified the Roman Empire enough to have a governor execute an innocent man. What's Jesus going to do? What's Jesus going to do in Jerusalem? Because the movies tell us that this would be the appropriate time to take your revenge. The revenge of Jesus. He's back from the dead. He's in the city that killed him. You're all going to get yours. This is it. You messed up, as my southern uh, grandparents would have said. You, you done ripped your britches now. You shouldn't have done this. But this isn't what Jesus does. It's amazing to me that the city that killed him is the first city to receive the gospel. As we said last week, or sorry, not last week, the week before last. As we said the last time we read this, that exactly to the day, thousands of years later, but to the day, the, same, the anniversary of the day where the law was given and 3,000 people died because of the rebellion, the Holy Spirit was given and 3,000 people were born again, saved, rescued, given life. This is an amazing thing. Jesus did not take revenge. Jesus came as he said, I didn't come to condemn the world. I came to save the world. And he proves it here in Jerusalem. Let's read what, what else Peter says. He says, this is what has been spoken through the prophet Joel. It shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. <laughs> Excuse me. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. That's pretty kind of scary. Kind of ends on a scary note, doesn't it? But here's what he says. It shall be that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Powerful. Now we understand that this is a prophecy that spans a large period of time. Because you notice the prophecy says it starts with in the last days. And it says these things are going to happen before the great and notable day of the Lord. So even though Peter says this is what he's talking about, he's not, he's not saying all of this is happening today because there's stuff of this prophecy yet to come. The blood, the fire, the vapors of smoke, the, you know, some of these signs and wonders in the heaven. We certainly see signs and wonders, but some of the stuff he's talking about is the stuff that happens before the great notable day of the Lord. That's, that's the end of the world. But he's saying, I will, before all of that happens, I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. And the evidence of my spirit being poured out is that your sons and daughters will prophesy. The evidence is that your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. He declares that this isn't just some random event. This has been foreseen and foretold for hundreds of years that this is exactly what was going to happen. He's talking to a group of people that should believe this. This is what we've been waiting for. And there's that statement that rings out in the crowd. Everybody that calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. He's reminding them that Jesus didn't just claim to be something special. That God showed him to be who he was. God attested to it through signs and wonders and miracles. He said, you guys know this. It's not a surprise to you. Verse 23. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. 
we alluded to this earlier, but Pete, city doesn't like you. At least they haven't in the past. Perhaps it's a good time for a kumbaya sermon that says, you know, we've had our differences. Can't we all just get along? I mean, maybe now's not the time to be blaming them for the death of the Son of God. That's how our natural mind might think. But Peter's not speaking of his own initiative. It's the Holy Spirit that's giving him the words to say. He's saying exactly what they need to hear at this point. Now, here's what he says. He says, you, he says, I mean, there's a bunch of things in this, but the first thing he says is, though you crucified him, it wasn't a surprise to God. This was all part of the plan. You did it, and there's blame on you for it, but it was, it was, God knew this since the beginning of time. This is how it was going to play out. As Jesus said, nobody can take my life from me. I lay it down freely. And to prove the point, every time he said, I am, he knocked the soldiers on their backs, and it happened twice. And he said, if I wanted to, I could call down legions of angels. Now, in the scripture, there's stories of one angel wiping out a whole army. What do you think thousands and thousands of angels could do? Think they could get them out of the jam? But he didn't. He says, I'm laying my life down. You're not taking it from me. I'm laying it down. Then Peter says, God knew this was going to happen. It was according to, it's been predestined. And then he says this, but you nailed him to a cross. And you didn't even do it yourself. See, the Greek word that we translate here as godless is actually without the law. And I believe here he's referring to the Romans. He's saying, you didn't even get your own, you didn't even do it with your own, you didn't do your own dirty work, you didn't even do it with your own hands. You used the Romans to crucify this guy. We're all implicated in this. Jew and Gentile, we all were involved. And even though you say, well, I wasn't alive then, my ancestors weren't there, it was our sin that put Jesus on the cross. The Jews might have said, crucify him, but our sin said, crucify him. The Romans might have whipped him, but it was for us that he was whipped. By his wounds, we are healed. Yes, Scripture says in Isaiah, as it tells a story of Jesus going to the cross hundreds of years before it would ever happen, it says, we looked at him and we thought that God was doing this to him because he deserved it. It says, but it was for us. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for us. The chastisement, the punishment for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. Peter writes later in the New Testament, by his stripes, we were healed. And as this is happening, as he's preaching this message, he's not going easy on the crowd. These are the disciples. Now, remember, it says that Peter's preaching, but the 11 are standing right next to him. The disciples that were afraid to go to the suburbs of Jerusalem. The disciples that had locked themselves behind closed doors for fear of the people of Jerusalem are now standing beside them. And you guys know, I know we've talked about this, but you know what we might be tempted to do. We might say, oh, God has obviously picked this guy to do it. Praise the Lord. Peter will be in the back room interceding for you. We'll make it sound spiritual because we don't want to sound like a coward. We're going to be interceding. We're going to be battling for you right back in the upper room where it all started, buddy. You just stand out here. You do your job. We'll pray for you, okay? If you, if you live through this, we'll talk. This will be great, but we're going to go pray for you. But this isn't what happened. The 11, the former cowards have been filled with the Spirit. They're no longer cowards. They're mighty men. There's men and women who were in the upper room that are now dispersed throughout the crowd, whether they're up in, on a platform, I don't know, but they're all there. As Peter preaches this, it doesn't go easy on him. He says, you crucified him. You used godless men to do it. Then he says this. This is where it gets real good. In verse 24, it starts out with the wonderful phrase, but God. Don't you love that phrase? Every time the enemy every time tries to mess the plan of God up, every time we mess the plan of God up, we really, uh, you know, think we've blown it. There's that phrase, but God. 
In the New Testament, in, in one place it says, but God, we were in our sins. We were in darkness. We, were, we did all these things. We were walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince and the power of the air. But God, being rich in mercy, and here he says, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death. Now, this is a great sentence. Since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. You see, sometimes we look at the resurrection like it was like, I mean, you know, wow, what a great miracle, what a big miracle. I mean, that must have taken all the power that heaven had. And I'm sure, it, I mean, it is the biggest miracle that, that, that's ever been and ever will be. And yet here it says it wasn't just, you know, it wasn't Jesus uh, or God against the odds raised Jesus from the dead because God is all powerful. It says it was impossible for the grave to hold Jesus. It was impossible for him to still be there. It was impossible for the grave to have power when God says it's an to the agony of death, it was impossible for Jesus to stay in the ground. And it says this in verse 25, for David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades or, or the grave nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness in your presence, with your presence. Peter's point here is, and he's going to say it in a moment, that David's not talking about David. Because here he says in verse 29, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. The reason he says that is because David said, you won't allow your servant, your holy one, to undergo decay. And what Peter's saying in a nice way is that David went through decay. We still have his grave. We don't even know if there's bones left. He has returned to the dust. So he must not have been talking about himself. Must have been talking about somebody else. In verse 30, and so because he was a prophet, and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, still talking about David, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Now, if, if you were... Uh, a scholar in the Old Testament, if you were a scribe and you read that verse where David said, the Lord said to my Lord, we'd all be confused by it until Jesus came along. Peter's bringing this out. He's bringing out that David, David was talking about somebody that we didn't know because you could understand if David said, the Lord said to me, sit at my right hand. But that's not what David said. He says, the Lord said to my Lord. Now, David is the king of Israel. There's no man that's above him. So he doesn't have an earthly Lord. He doesn't have anybody that's bossing him around. So if the Lord is God and the Lord says to my Lord, who in the world is he talking about? And Peter's saying, this is the Father saying to Jesus, sit at my right hand. I love this. Do you ever, do you ever think about the fact that Peter didn't show this kind of brain power while he was walking with Jesus? <laughs> It was a great revelation when he just realized that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. He was patted on the back for that and immediately got spanked like two minutes later for saying, Jesus, you can't possibly die. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. But he, he does not seem to be, bless his heart, he's bold, he's loyal to the end. He's like a, he's like a really nice pit bull, you know, he's going to stick with you. He'll fight for you. He says he'll die for you. But I don't see a lot of evidence in those three years that he walked with Jesus of him saying, this seems like the prophecy. Uh, didn't, didn't Joel say something like this? What about, what about Isaiah? Peter's not pulling these things out. You know, this is a fisherman. And yet when he's filled with the Holy Spirit, 
before the, before the day of Pentecost comes, he says, guys, the scripture says that there'd be someone that betrayed Jesus and another one would take his place. We need to replace Judas. Then when he stands up, he is all of a sudden an Old Testament scholar who can, who, who's saying, Joel said this, David said this. I mean, and he is, he is dividing the world, word like an expert scribe. Now, this reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where it says that God took the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And this is great hope for all of us. It's great hope for all of us, because a lot of us would come to the Lord and say, we are the foolish ones. We, we, how can you possibly? And, you know, maybe you came to church one day, and, and you hear these people talk about the Lord, and they're opening their Bibles, or, you know, they're, they're saying things that are just seem way above your head. And, and, and some of you might see the gap and the chasm between where you are and where peop, other people are, and you say, I, how am I supposed, these guys are telling me from the stage that I should go spread the gospel in Lloydminster. How do I do that? I can't preach like you. I don't know the scripture like her. How can I do that? Look what God did with this guy. An uneducated fisherman. In fact, later in the book of Acts, they recognize. Later in the book of Acts, they go, it's obvious these guys aren't educated. But it's also obvious they've been with Jesus. And a man got healed, so there's something to it. He speaks with a Galilean accent. That's not like a sophisticated French accent. It's a hillbilly accent. That's what gave him away in the courtyard. When he went to go see Jesus, they said, you have a Galilean accent. You're not from around here. So let's just picture this today. He's coming all hillbilly, and here's this hillbilly-speaking fisherman that gets up. Don't you think God could have picked somebody else? Couldn't he have picked, Matthew was a tax collector, must have some education under his belt. Nathaniel seemed like a pretty upright young man. Jesus saw him thinking under the tree, meditating on something, so he seems to be a thinker. Peter doesn't seem to be the thinker of the bunch. He seems to be bold and, and like I said, loyal and powerful, but he doesn't seem to be the one that's pondering things. And yet God uses him. God uses him to preach this message to a city that rejected Jesus, to a city that Jesus wept over and said, if you knew, if you only knew the things which would lead to peace. But now you'll be hemmed in from all sides. I, I longed to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you missed the day. You did not recognize the day of your visitation. And yet God had mercy on this great city. And the place that killed Jesus, the city that condemned him to death, was the first city to hear the gospel. He says this. Peter finishes with this. He says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, made Jesus, both Lord and Christ. Of course, Christ is... is it's lost on us sometimes the meaning of that word. When Peter said this, if he was preaching in Hebrew or Aramaic, he wouldn't have said Christ. He would have said the word for Messiah. That's all that Christ means in the Greek is the Messiah, the anointed one. So Peter is saying here that Jesus has been exalted through, through death and resurrection. God has placed him at a position where he is the Lord. He's the king of kings and he's your Messiah. And he proclaims this to him, and he says, then again, just to nail it in, pardon the pun, he says, which you crucified. Now, Peter, you already said that. You, you, you got that? You pricked him in the heart. Okay, bring it home with some nice stuff so they want to flood the altars. <laughs> Let him know. That's right, not all bad news. But here's what happens from this message. In verse 37, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
For the promise is for you. Wow. It's for you who crucified Jesus. It's for you who had him whipped to the edge of death. It's for you who plucked out his beard. It's for you who blindfolded him and beat him and said, prophesy who hit you. It's for you who wasn't, weren't just content crucifying him, but mocked him while he was on the cross. It's for you and for your kids. This is, this is something amazing. This is for you. It's a promise for you. He didn't come with a condemnation. He came with a promise. I mean, they had condemned themselves, but Peter came with the message of the gospel. Yes, you crucified him. Yes, it, you are to blame. And yet here he is offering you forgiveness. He's saying, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord. And he goes on and says, he's obviously the Lord. Whoever calls on his name will be saved. And you notice this, and you're going to see it throughout the book of Acts. You see it when uh, Stephen spoke in front of the Sanhedrin. You see them being pierced to the heart by what he said. It went past their brain. It went past their prejudices. It went past their layers of self-defense, and it hit them right in the heart. And they responded to it. The Sanhedrin didn't do the same thing. When Stephen said, Many of the same things to them, their hearts were hardened. And it says they were cut to the quick, but they became angry and said, let's kill him. These men responded correctly to the Holy Spirit. And there's moments in all our lives where we're pierced to the heart. Maybe it's been in a church service. Maybe it's been at home when you've been praying or opening your Bible. Maybe it's in a conversation. Maybe it's in a moment of stillness. Maybe it's in a moment of chaos. But there's moments in all our lives where you're pricked and you feel the Holy Spirit. And you must decide what you're going to do with that. They do the smartest thing they can do. Brethren, what must we do? Peter doesn't say 10,000 push-ups. Peter doesn't say, it's going to take a long time to earn your privileges back. Peter says, repent. Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this promise is for you, and it's for your children. Do you know in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the Scripture says that the sins of the fathers were visited upon the sons. And yet in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, when God talks about a new covenant that's coming, he says, in those days... No longer will you say our fathers ate sour grapes and our children's teeth were set on edge. In other words, we're paying for their mistakes. He says each man will pay for his own iniquity. But then he begins to say, and this is the covenant I will make with you, my spirit on you, my words in your mouth. And he ends it with this, and I will remember your lawless deeds no more. I'm, I'm, I'm covering it. I'm taking it away. So from the old covenant where the children paid for their father's mistakes to this new covenant where he says the promise is for you and the promise is for your children. Receive the Holy Spirit. Be forgiven. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. That's us, guys. I don't know. Do we have any Jews in the house? No, so it's all us. <laughs> We're all the Gentiles, the goyim. We're the ones that he's talking about, the far off, who this promise extends to us. And he says, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day, the anniversary of the giving of the law where 3,000 were killed. That day, there were added about 3,000 souls. The city that they should have been afraid to enter, the city they shouldn't have stayed in, especially in this volatile time where there'd been a, a crowd riled up to kill their leader. This city, 50 days later, they stand and say, He's offering you an open hand. You did it. You crucified him. But here is your day of salvation. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And they were. 
What I love about this sermon, you got to realize it hasn't changed. Tony, has this changed? Has the message changed? It hasn't. We think we got to be so clever. You know, the scripture says in the New Testament, Apostle Paul says, we've renounced the craftiness and the adulterating of the word. We're not going to be crafty in our preaching. He says, with sincerity of heart, with truth, we preach Christ. And here, this is what Peter does. Do you notice most of this message is not focused on them? There's a couple points where he said, you did this, you did that. And he says, this is being offered to you. But for the most part, who is he talking about? For the most part, the message is, is placed firmly on Jesus. This is who he was. This is what the prophets said about him. This is what he did while he was on the earth. This is what happened when he was crucified. This is what happened after he was risen from the dead. And this is what's about to happen now. They placed the emphasis right where it belonged on Jesus. We think we need to be more sophisticated now. I'm telling you, you don't. The difference in Peter's message was the power of the Holy Spirit. And as many believers that will preach the gospel, the good news, not because somebody told you you had a quota to to fill. Because if you're preaching to people so you can get your stats up, so your little church baseball card gets filled, you know, I got 45 people saved this week. Praise the Lord. But if that's why you're doing it, don't you think people kind of get that? I'm being sold something. I'm a number. Nobody's a number to Jesus. And this gospel is so real to us. And it's not preached out of duty, although it is our duty. It's not preached merely to make the church bigger, although the church will grow. It's preached out of the love of God working through us. It's preached because God so loved this world that he gave his only son. That whoever would believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. It's because God loved these people that he sent you into the world. As we said uh, a couple Sundays ago, Jesus said, you're the seed that I sowed into the world. And here's the first fruits. 3,000 people. 120 grew to 3,000 after one message. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. And God didn't use a a good preacher. He used the uneducated hillbilly Peter to preach the message. Now, don't get me wrong. Peter didn't remain a hillbilly for the rest of his life. And what would be wrong if he did? I mean, he obviously, you know, allowed himself to be taught. He studied to show himself approved. He didn't just ride on this saying, I don't need to open my Bible. God will just give me the words whenever it happens. (laughs) But at the same time, God used the foolish to confound the wise. Jerusalem was not the home of those that barely knew the scriptures. Jerusalem's not where you'd want to go to play around with prophecies and say, this is what it means or this is what it means. Jerusalem's the city where they have experts. Jerusalem's the city where they teach the, they teach the, the new students coming up. This is where the PhDs are. And this is where <laughs> Peter doesn't just say, look guys, I don't know what you know, but I know what I saw. <laughs> Peter gets up and says, this is, this is fulfillment of prophecy happening before our eyes, and he expertly goes through it because the Holy Spirit was giving him the words to say at the right time. Does that mean that Peter didn't know the prophecies? No, I'm sure he did. I'm sure he studied. I'm sure he knew. But it was the Holy Spirit that made this man a former hick, a former coward, a former stubborn, bullheaded follower of Jesus. Preach the greatest message that we find in the New Testament. And it's this message that still is a saving message today, the message that has placed the emphasis back on where it belongs, right on Jesus. Here he is. He died for you. The cross finished a lot of stuff. The cross ended, put an end to the bondage of sin that was over our life. And the resurrection See, when we identify with the crucifixion of Christ, we identify with the death of Christ. The Bible says we are, uh, we've been crucified with Christ, but then it also says, so let us all, if we've been crucified, let's live in Christ. In the crucifixion, in the death of Jesus, when we identify with this, when we died, our, our old nature died. That part of us that was bound by sin, the part of us that was bound by addiction, the part of us that said, I can't, I I try, but as much as I try, I can't follow him. 
That part of us, that body of sin, was put on the cross and crucified. And our sinful self was judged and punished in Jesus Christ. And yet the message of the cross isn't complete without the message of the resurrection. Because in the resurrection, in the cross we see our old self dead, but in the resurrection we see ourselves alive in Christ. We see our new self, our new identity as believers. And it's that new identity you see in Peter today. You see him preach it, you see him proclaim it, and 3,000 men and women are born again because God took what he had and who he had and filled them with a spirit that they didn't have before, filled them with the same spirit that walked with Jesus, filled them with the same spirit that did miracles, the same spirit that raised from the dead, the same spirit that, that, that made Jesus able to say, I don't do anything unless the Father says to do it. That spirit filled the church. And the evidence of that spirit was that what happened in the upper room spilled out into the streets and in the streets, Jesus was proclaimed. And in the streets, the lost were found. And in the streets, those that Jesus should have been, could have been like the Terminator had come back and said, I'm having my revenge. I've never seen the movie, but I'm assuming that's what happens. But instead, Jesus' revenge is a message of reconciliation. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't skip over the big de- little or big details. But he simply says, you're guilty, and yet Jesus has made a way for you to be forgiven. That message pierced the hearts of many, and their response was repentance, and their response was salvation. Thank God 3,000 lived that day, and the church only grew from there. So that gives us some hope, doesn't it? It gives us all some hope. I I want you to put to death and completely bury the notion that you are too early in your walk to tell people about Jesus. You might be too early in your walk to start a group where you're teaching them every week. It might be too early in your walk where you're leading a group of thousands. But you're not too early in your walk to preach the good news. Now, I'm just looking around people in the room. I mean, many of you could be leading a group of thousands. But we put such barriers between us and what God's called us to do because we just don't think we're ready. And I agree, there's a time of preparation for everything, but we got to remember what we talked about on Sunday. First missionary to Decapolis was a demon-possessed man who'd been saved, or not even saved, I mean, Jesus was still alive, but, but who had been delivered for like maybe an hour, two hours. And Jesus says, go back into the city and tell him what I've done for you, how the Lord had mercy on you and what he, great things he's done for you. That guy had barely anything to talk about, but it was enough to be a missionary to his city. As long as you know Jesus, the power of his death and resurrection, you got enough to preach. And as long as you've got the Holy Spirit, you'll have the words to say at the right time that'll pierce the heart, cut through the quick, and bring hope and salvation to many. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. Let's stand up. God is good to us, and he's good to our city. I love this city. Didn't always love this city. Got to be honest. Maybe I don't need to be honest, but, but I will be honest. I haven't always loved this city, but what the Lord does when he calls you to a place is puts a love in your heart. And there's a love in us for this region. There's got to be enough love in you for this region that you're willing to say, I love them like Jesus loves them. You know, the scripture says, don't love the world, nor the things that are in the world. What he's talking about is the system of the world, the way the world does things, the things of the world. But he also says, for God so loved the world. And that's the love that's in us right now. These disciples could have easily said, we want revenge. But what they did was bring salvation and the gospel. And I want to pray today that we would, that God would impart to us a love for the city and the communities that he's put us in, a love for your coworkers. You say, I love my coworkers. We get along great. Do you love them enough that they know the truth? Do you love them enough that you say, I, 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 can't, I can't just stand by and see you live one more day, one more, one more year without knowing Jesus, without knowing the joy of salvation?
without being delivered from the bondage of sin and death. I'm going to pray that God puts that love in us, all right? And with that love, you see, this all comes with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's full of the love. The Holy Spirit, because the Bible says love is the first fruit of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is full of love. The Holy Spirit will give you boldness. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses. So the Holy Spirit empowers you to witness. You'll have the love that says, because remember, what, the, what does the Bible say? God has not given you a spirit of timidity. If you feel timid, God has not given you a spirit of shyness, of timidity. God will use introverts and extroverts alike. God's not giving you a spirit of timidity. What spirit has he given you? It goes on to say he's giving you a spirit of love. That same spirit is a spirit of power, and it's of a sound mind. That spirit of love will say, I need to go preach the gospel. The spirit of that, that, it's the spirit of power which will say, I can preach the gospel. Not just in my own words, in my own way, but with the power of God, with the demonstration of the spirit. And that same spirit will give you that sound mind, the disciplined mind that won't be thrown off the rails, won't be thrown off by worry or fear, won't be thrown off by doubt, but will keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you put us here for such a time as this. We weren't born in a random time or a random place, but we're here now. You've called us. You've called us not to be merely a group of people that are spectators of what you're doing. Not merely fans, but you've called us to be proclaimers of the good news. You've called us to be carriers of the gospel, carriers of the power of God, that signs and wonders would follow them that believe. And Lord, I know that in this room we've got gathered those that love you, those that care. But I'm asking you to fill us with your love for the people around us for the city that you've called us to. Fill us with your love and your compassion that we'd say, if God loved them enough to send Jesus, I love them enough to lay my life down. I love them enough to preach this gospel. I love them enough. And because I love them, I'm depending on the Holy Spirit. Lord, we need you. God, we need you. We are more aware every day of our need for you. Fill us with that spirit which empowers us to go and to preach, not in our own mind or our own cleverness or craftiness, but rather with your power and your spirit. I'm praying, Lord, that there'd be people that hear some of, some of these guys talk about Jesus, not with eloquent words, not with fancy messages or crafty tricks, but just plain out truth that as they just preach the gospel in their own words with the power of the Holy Spirit, that hearts will be pierced. That people will, who hear it normally would just say, I, I don't care what you say. They, they brush it off. Instead, something would prick them in the heart and they'd respond to it in Jesus' name. Lord, give us that love. Lord, give us that power. We've received of your spirit. Now fill us again in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys a great deal, and I know that, that this is not just something that we've learned. This is something that's gone in and created some things in us and empowered us to do it. Let's go out and let's do what we've, what we've learned. Let's go out and, and see what we've talked about. Let's not just be hearers. Let's be doers. And I, I'm expecting, I won't say this lightly, I'm expecting to hear stories. I want to hear the stories. You know what? Your job, your responsibility is not what people do with the Word. Peter preached the Word. People repented. Stephen preached the same word. People got mad and tried to kill him. Your responsibility is not what they do with the word. Your responsibility is let the Holy Spirit use you. You preach the word. Like, let God worry about the rest. If you come back and say, I preached the word and nobody listened, you're still a success in my book. Because you preach the word. Amen. God bless you. I'm not setting you up for failure, am I? God bless you. I love you.